Ted and I have known Missy in different capacities for many decades. First, she was our babysitter when we were 10. Then we both invited her to the prom when she was a senior and we were freshmen. Two years later, she married my dad. Missy became mom. After divorcing Bill's dad, she married my dad and became my mom. Now she's marrying Ted's little brother, Officer Deacon Logan. Greetings, Starfighters, and welcome to the 200th episode of Ruined Ooh, Childhoods. 200 Yay. more yeah. episodes. 200 more episodes. 200 more. <laughs> Two, yeah. So uh, this is so exciting. I just kept thinking, John, uh, and, you know, I was trying to queue up this audio clip, um, but I didn't, uh, not streaming, could not find it on YouTube, but um, I will reference it, and I imagine that listeners to our show will probably get the reference in in Batman, in Tim Burton's 1989 Batman, when Mayor Borg is talking about the 200th anniversary of Gotham oh. City. Say, I want balloons. I want a parade. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we can just imagine that we're hearing it right now. I mean, if you're like me, you can hear it in your head. Yes. Exactly. So, to our dear listeners, I'm John. That's Dan. We're brothers. We've been doing this since uh, January of 2019. Correct. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And it's so exciting. I'm so glad that we're still doing this and we don't have any plans to stop doing it. Uh, in fact, we just made a, a commitment for another year's worth of episodes to ourselves. <laughs> we sure did. But it's it's exciting because, uh, you know, sometimes we kind of have, you know, in the past we've done our theme months and those kind of allow us yeah. to plan things out um, because we do, even though we've seen many of the movies we're talking about, we do like to watch them and have them fresh in our minds and watch them also through the lens of what would we do to revive this property if sure, there was yeah. to be some type of revival of it. And of course, also just want to acknowledge as we're talking about like, you know, hypothetical productions made by studios, want to point out that the uh, Writers Guild and the um, SAG AFTRA are uh, still on strike and still Yes. out there fighting every day for fair pay, fair treatment. Really. Sure, yeah. yeah. Yes, uh, their agreements were made long before uh, streaming services were the norm. And so uh, the residuals that they get from streaming services are completely inadequate. It's not a living wage for a profession that a lot of people associate with immense amounts of wealth. And that is just not true. And uh, a lot of Actors and writers are having to uh, find other means of income, and uh, it's really upsetting. And and we hope that the studios 
can uh, come to their senses. And by studios, we also mean streamers well, like Netflix and Yes. I think, yeah, I feel like the term studio is used less literally now. Sure. Um, but yeah, producers, these production companies, the distributors. Dis- whether they're distributors or I-, I feel like they are distributors and they also do their own productions. They're I feel the like- holders of the of all of the contracts and all of the money. And the top executives are making gobs and gobs of money. Oh, yeah. And the people who are uh, making the film, and I believe that uh, IATSE, which is the you know a lot of the more the labor unions, the yeah. crews, I believe that their uh, well their contracts I think are up for negotiation in a little while. So I think that once that happens, then you're really oh. going to start to see a big shift, unless something happens before then. Look, hopefully, maybe knock on wood, we'll see. Yeah, but. I mean, mm, yeah, it's I, rough I mean, out there. It, it's time for the industry to recognize that we're not in the compartmentalized world of entertainment as we once were. And that, yeah, yeah it's. Well, and what's also up for discussion is, and forgive us if you've heard this on other podcasts, but, you know, there are plans from these, and we're just going to say studios, to uh, scan actors, including background actors, yeah. and use artificial intelligence to create people and essentially eliminate background actors, which you and I have both been. Yes. I, yeah. You know, for, for me, it was my only means of income for a while when I had first moved to Los Angeles. And let me tell you, there's a lot of people that rely on that. Yeah. And it's it's really important. And also, it's a it's a it's an essential way for people to also network and get to be on film sets, which, you know, that's kind of a dying, a dying breed too. Well, the film set. But it's, uh, you know, the art, the, the ideas of artificial intelligence that if the studios get their way will be implemented is really terrifying and really upsetting too. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, as I was explaining this to someone and you were my example and to just say like, y- um, you know, rather than, you know, getting paid for all these jobs. And I don't even know if this is true. Like you'd get paid for the one job or, you know, you just get paid. You get paid like a half a day. Yeah. You get scanned and then sent home. And then you'd it. see yourself in, you know, in shows and, and movies that you were never on the set for. Right. Um, And that you never got paid for and your, your image is in there. So Hopefully that is not because I I could see that being the secondary fight of like, well, like, so what? You're using my likeness. You're using this. I mean, it's still not going to be fair pay. And it's a really like I understand there's there there is the other side of of it of like the advantages to doing that. But I don't think the outweigh. Um, the loss that you'd get of, but not just because people like have jobs through that. Like there is a difference between having people and, uh, you know, interesting. Well, cause we're, we're going to come back to, to this somewhat, uh, later in our conversation, but like there is something different about seeing genuine reaction. And it's actually more so if for background, <laughs> Well, and, and I'll say this, it would be very different if the top executives were just scraping by as well. Oh, well, yeah. 
Yeah, if these things literally just oh, made no money at all, then if they we wouldn't needed, be having that's this kind of conversation. If they needed to cut corners, yeah. Though it's interesting, and just to kind of um, and and I know we want to um, you know move into uh, talking about Bill, Bill and Ted and Indy. <laughs> yeah, but. I was listening earlier to uh, Adam McKay on an episode of Unspooled, and he was talking about, and this was from the end of May, so mm-hmm. the earlier days of strike. I don't know if uh, uh, actors were were on strike. No, I don't think SAG SAG after was part of it at that point. No, but it was kind of like impending. What he was talking about with just kind of like these quote unquote studios going so far to these you know extremes to just you know hoard hoard the wealth would be a he was theorizing about like a resurgence in live theater and kind of people supporting and working in live uh live live theater more i also wonder and i look at and what i think about this is i was thinking about this while listening to adam mckay so um a24 Mm-hmm. Of course, has met the demands of the unions, sure. yeah, and therefore, you know, has recommenced, you know, production of. I believe they have. I I was not aware of that, but if are I, if you like, saw that that's true, then that's true. Yeah. I either like either they are like back in business, or like they are like yeah, no, that's totally reasonable and fair. So an A twenty four seems to me to be like. The United Artists, the original United <laughs> the, Artists. Yeah, the idea. When yeah. it, it was, you know, whatever, Chaplin, Pickford. Fairbanks. Fairbanks. I feel like A24 is one of those companies that is run by people who have a passion for filmmaking. It's the next wave of the way that the, that things should be done. I mean, kind of going back to the, not, not the seventies, the seventies, the seventies was like the perfect era of big studios banking on, uh, and gambling on like young inventive filmmakers. Yeah. So like, there's a lot of things you look at and you're like, man, a studio, like, that got that got made by by studio and like like wow <laughs> wow so anyway that's uh my take on that and i mean i think that's just kind of what i would like to see is i would like to see a resurgence of studios but kind of like by the people for the people yeah well we will see what happens i wish everybody who is involved with these strikes the best of luck and hope that People come to their senses. And perhaps what it will take to bring everybody together (laughs) is a song. (laughs) Is a song or a dial of destiny, perhaps, uh, where we can go back in time and do it right this time. Anyway, yes, if we want to see Roman centurions. um... (laughs) Well, before you say anything, we are going to be spoiling movies. Well, one movie that's new, one movie that came out a few years ago. Well, we're going to start. We'll start with Bill and Ted. No, we're not. We're going to start with a quick one more thing. Oh, okay. Okay. Because on our Event Horizon episode, uh, we were talking about some of the cast, two of whom are in the movie Breakdown, which at the time I had not seen. I've seen it since we recorded that episode. What you think? It's great. Great movie, right? It's it's fantastic. Yeah. Got a got a Hitchcocky vibe, kind of a dual Steven Spielberg's dual vibe to it. So right, so this is a a Kurt Russell movie, 
And it, what, early 90s? Late 97. 97. Wow. Was it really that late? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It had kind of a, an early 90s feel to it. I think because it wasn't flashy. Uh, but, right. you know, it's it's very dusty, actually. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a guy and his wife who are uh, on a road trip or they're moving to a new place and uh, they their car breaks down. It's called breakdown. And the the wife gets uh, abducted and held for ransom. And it's uh, we we see things through Kurt Russell's character's perspective as he tries to uh, fight to get his wife back against all odds, and uh, it is really intense. Yeah, I have not seen it in quite some time, but I remember it being very intense and like a, a, one of those movies that you don't expect to get you um, quite the way it does. Sorry, if, if you, I'm swatting at a, a like a fly just, or a mosquito, just leave it be, man. Just I'm leave tr- it be. I'm trying so hard. Okay, <laughs> but just full disclosure, that's so. What's all right, so what we're doing on this episode is we are taking a look at some of the movies that we covered early on uh, in this podcast, where uh, and it just so happens that uh, information about their next iterations were like just being released. So I, we're going to listen to some of our takes on, uh, on two movies that we had covered. And, uh, we, we have some clips that are going to go into uh, from those original episodes that have our ideas for what could happen next. In addition to us reading the news in real time about what was being, uh, what was coming out about these movies. And it's so fascinating to see what has changed and how close or far we got (laughs) from the actual thing. So we recorded our episode on the Bill and Ted franchise in February of 2019. And our, we recorded an episode on the Indiana Jones franchise in uh, February of 2020. So the following year. And uh, we're going to, we're going to look at, at those, uh, we'll, we'll go in chronological order from when we recorded those episodes. <laughs> and uh, Dan, I don't know. Do you want to just listen to what we were talking about at the time for b- what was going to be coming next for Bill and Ted? Yeah, let's hear it. How much do you know about the third Bill and Ted? I had seen a working title as Bill and Ted Go to Hell, but that was also the working title of the second one. So the title is going to be Bill and Ted Face the Music. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I, I watched some clips from different news shows talking about this. And I don't know if they've started production on it, but if they haven't, they're starting soon. But basically, the plot is they are now 50 and they still haven't written the song yet that will change the course of humanity. And they still haven't written God gave rock and roll to us. <laughs> well, I guess that was just a song that got people's attention, but they still just haven't written the song that will change. Because actually, if you do look at the newspapers, the other articles in the newspapers are, are talking about things going on in Iraq and like wars going on. So it's like, there's still war. So according to the, according to the end of Bill and Ted's book is journey in the uh, newspaper articles. So yeah, it's just them coming to terms of the fact that they still haven't written this song 
I mean, and I so, will, yeah. yeah, so I'm cu- I'm curious to know more about the concept, but I feel like if Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon are working on it, then they I, are. I have faith that this is not just going to be a let's get back and do the same jokes with, right. you know, and that they're older and now make some, some old jokes. Because what they did with Bogus Journey just uh, really convinced me that they know how to continue telling stories about these characters without it being repetitive. And now, of course, there's... Without relying on the same tricks. Right. Yeah. So, Dan, that was our our first first hearing about a lot of the things that would be happening in Bill and Ted Face the Music. It's interesting. It's kind of... It's fascinating to go back in time and hear us... <laughs> Talking about something, we're we're Bill and Tedding right now yes. a little bit. Yeah, um, so we're we're talking, we're listening to our past us's talk about talk about this to our future us's right now about uh, how's it going, <laughs> past Dan and John. <laughs> so uh, I'll read a little plot synopsis for anybody who hasn't seen Bill and Ted face the music, uh, just very briefly. Yet to fulfill their rock and roll destiny, the now middle-aged best friends Bill and Ted set out on a new adventure when a visitor from the future warns them that only their song can save life as we know it. Along the way, they are helped by their daughters, a new batch of historical figures, and a few music legends to seek the song that will set their world right and bring harmony to the universe. So what they end up doing is instead of writing the song, which they only have like an hour and change to do, they travel into the future to try to steal it from themselves. And Bill and Ted see different versions of themselves from the future and the versions from themselves of the future who feel betrayed by present day Bill and Ted Mm -hmm. keep on trying to, you know, beat the shit out of them essentially or, or mess with them or, you know, trick them in order to kind of change the way that their own lives would go. And, um, it's, it's a really clever way, you know, in, in all of the Bill and Ted movies, they, talk to the versions of themselves in a way. And so yeah. it's it's only appropriate to have them continue to do this. And it's also a very Bill and Ted of them because the movie starts off with them, first of all, at the wedding of Missy, <laughs> who was first Bill's stepmom, then Ted's stepmom, now marrying Deacon, Ted's younger brother. <laughs> right. In a very funny sequence. And I love the explanation of how that makes the family structure change. It's so funny. <laughs> and it's so Bill and Ted, too. It's so great. And uh, we have we have them performing. You can see them really trying to <laughs> write the song that's going to unite the world. And you they're incorporating instruments from all over different countries and everything. And they're putting in a concerted effort for their entire lives to make this happen. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there, there's a lot about this movie that I really, and I think, I think the phrase like it's so Bill and Ted, that's what keeps going through anytime. Cause yes, there are, you could point out so many, you know, little flaws and gaps in logic. But anytime my mind would do that, my mind would also then say, but it's a Bill and Ted movie. Like that's, yeah, that's the, they play by the rules that they've established. So, right. And, uh, and we're going to come to this in a little bit, but I feel the same exact way about Indiana Jones. Well, uh, yes. Yes. And they, they play by the rules that they set decades ago. Right. 
I would say, so we meet their daughters. Uh, yes. Well, we've met their daughters at the end of Bogus Journey when they come back from the future after learning how to play guitar. Right. And uh, now we see them as, I don't know, young 20, something, maybe 21, 22, something like that. And uh, whatever the math is that makes that work for, <laughs> uh, I guess, 91. Yeah. Anyway, so they... Uh, Wait, but if were they born in the if they were born in the future then they came back to the past, their age is very confusing. Look, there's a lot of uh, why do the princesses not age? Uh, well, yeah, or uh, yes, and they're always changing how they look because they're different people. Yes. Um yeah, I feel like they could have aged up. And Jamie Mays and Aaron Hayes I mean, they may be somewhat age appropriate, but they don't look it. Well, it's like they're closer to age appropriate than the actresses who play their daughters, who are also probably, like you said, too young. Well, although, I mean, are we supposed to think that they're, are they in high school or I don't, no, like I don't no think that they're in high school. school. I think that they're out of school. So I they're probably is- like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's the thing is like when you start to enter into these conversations with yourself about like, well, wait a minute, then there's got to be that other voice that comes. It's like, it's a Bill and Ted movie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> let it do what it needs to do. <laughs> yeah. And I think that what they do is really smart because at the very beginning of the movie, the first thing that we hear is... The following, and by the way, all of these clips that I'm playing, I've kind of cut down either for time or just to kind of remove unnecessary bits. So uh, this is what we hear at the beginning of Bill and Ted Face the Music. This is the story of our most excellent dads. Not long before we were born, they were told they were going to write a song that was going to unite the entire world. Which they thought they had done with their hit single, Those Who Rock. Not only did it not unite the world, but the band fell apart. And our dads, alone now, were trying harder and harder. But the problem was, the harder dads tried, the less interested people seemed to be in their music. Not only was it wearing on them and on the family, but the universe they were told they were going to bring together was actually starting to unravel. So I feel like they do a really good job at the beginning of being like, yeah, we realized that at the end of Bogus Journey, it seemed like everything was on track, but here's what ended up actually happening. And now here's where we are. Yeah. And I think that they do, uh, uh, you know, despite the amount of things that you just let go because it's a Bill and Ted movie. Yeah. There's so many things about it where I feel like, wow, they really smartly anticipated something, which I feel like at the end, because it's like you kind of paint yourself in a corner when the resolution to your storyline is that someone writes a song that is so brilliant, it it unites the world and saves space and time and reality. Right. Which is impossible. <laughs> but in the logic of a Bill and Ted movie... Well, and, and I kind of, you know, and I, I just finished, I rewatched it. I just finished rewatching it this morning, actually. And, you know, by the time it got to the end, I was like, you know, they made it work so much where you really wanted them to succeed and you 
were so bought, or at least I was so bought into it that I was like, you know, I don't, whatever. It doesn't matter if this is all just like, you know, an epic, uh, you know, kind of the, the surging part of a, of a film score. Uh, but then I like that they kind of wrap it up with that voiceover of like, it wasn't about the song. It was about that everybody was playing it together. Right. Which also, yeah. also to put Bill and Ted face the music in the con- in the context of when it was released. Yes, February twenty twenty. Was it February twenty twenty? Was it? Oh no 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 no. That's when we no we did the episode in February. Sorry. Um, when did it come out? Um, it was. Oh, you know what? I have the Wikipedia page open. It was August twenty eighth, twenty twenty. So we were just really settled into the pandemic to the point where we're just like, this is not going to just be two weeks at home. This is the real deal. And uh, that was when this was released on VOD. And uh, I thought that it was kind of a perfect movie to come out at that time where it was like, you know, this is what we need. This is what we need is to unite and to all kind of be together. And and because we were involved in a global activity. Right. That, you know, everybody is impacted by this on the planet. But yet still that was creating more division, especially, uh, you know, I mean, globally, but especially in the United States. Sure. So it just it felt like, like you said, it was the right movie at the right time. And it was also such a great I, I mean, for people like me who, you know, um, you know, grew up. I, I mean, you, you as well. Uh, like people like us I grew up who grew up, uh, you know, but not, I don't want to say grew up on these movies because there's like only three of them and only two that came out when we were growing yeah, up. Yeah, you know, how many times I watched the Bill and Ted, the first well, two Bill and Ted movies, yes, like they were they were formative, yeah, they, they were part of my upbringing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I will still to this day remember uh, going to see Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure at the Westfield Twin. I'm sure I said mm-hmm. on at the time. Yes, you did. Um, sitting in the <laughs> in the very front row, and le- and I had a stiff neck for days from just leaning my head back. But I w- uh, was so much fun. Such a fun movie. It's a fun movie, and yeah the the original Bill and Ted. It was something. I, it's hard to say entirely different because we were at a time of Back to the Future and, and other movies where it's like, uh, and other, you know, burnout characters, Spicoli's. I mean, Bill and Ted right. were amongst the, uh, they were pre Wayne's world, uh, but they were, you know, that kind of vibe where it's like, for them, it's not specified that they're getting high. They're just more of like a culturally burnt out. They're dopey. They're dopey. Yeah. Yeah. And it's fun to watch them. I I rewatched uh the other Bill and Ted's the other day and in Excellent Adventure when they're giving the report they're actually speaking to things from a place of knowledge. They're yeah. not just letting the historical characters that they've collected do all the work. They gain knowledge while they were doing what they were doing. And uh there are some truly funny and smart moments in there. And then in Bogus Journey that movie takes a lot of really bold uh, moves. It, it makes a lot of really bold moves that you're looking at. And you're just like, this is not a movie for children the way that it seems like it would be. But yeah, well, no, I think it was a movie for like, you know, the, the 
uh, you know, 11 and 12 year olds who saw the first one and now we're a little bit older. It was a little bit darker for them, but still, I mean, yeah. William Sadler as death, which of course you couldn't make a third Bill and Ted's movie without. Well, also, you know, any movie that's for teens, essentially, that uh, heavily references uh, the Seventh Seal and uh, Butch right. and Sundance, the early days. <laughs> right. 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 No, no, no. Well, I, yeah. I, well, that's the other thing where it's like, I feel like, you know, it's one of those where they put those jokes in to amuse themselves. And it's kind of right. like, w- not in a bad way, because like, I'm like, I do that. And it's kind of like, I'm going to throw th- this joke in uh, because it, it tickles me. And, yeah. and and maybe a couple of other people will get it or laugh at it. Like, I don't know. I thought Butch and Sundance the early years, I thought that was funny. And I didn't, it wasn't like I had seen it and was like, oh, right. That was the, you know, tepid attempt at a, at a yeah. prequel to a classic Western. No, yeah. I I just, I was like, oh, that's a funny rant. I knew it existed sure. because I was a freaking like blockbuster video nerd. Yeah. But, but also, you know, coming back to Bill and Ted face the music, I, I think that they did a really awesome job at making it feel current and for a new audience mm. and uh, being true to the spirit of the series and uh, giving a good explanation of how things could really turn out, which is handing things over to the next generation and being humble enough to realize that it is the next generation that ultimately becomes responsible for creating this music. Right. You're not here to back us up. We're here to back you up. We're your yeah. band. It's a really sweet, it was, really I sweet cried. moment. To, I, oh, yeah. I was I was in tears watching it before. And it's like there's so many things about it that I could pick on, but like I don't want to. Because it's just, uh, you know, so uh, delightful. And and yes, for me, you know, I've already bought into the series. I understand the rules. I understand the yeah. world that they've created. Like you said, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey really, uh, it, it sets it up a lot and lets us know what kind of world we're, we're dealing with. Yeah. It's also why I don't mind a lot of the, like, you know, talking about like revisiting the same bits. Right. I well, like the way they do it. <laughs> I like the way they do it too, but they also introduce us to some really fun new characters. In addition to their daughters, we have Kristen Schaal and Holland Taylor who are playing uh, Rufus's daughter and also then just kind of like the, I don't know, the head of the future. Well, it's Rufus's daughter and uh, ex and wife. <laughs> right. That's her mother. Yeah. Kristen Schaal and is so funny in it. Uh, Kristen Schaal's great. And then we also get to meet uh, a wonderful new character who's kind of this movie's death in kind of a way is Dennis Caleb McCoy, played by Anthony Carrigan, um, who we all know and love from Barry as NoHo Hank. And this is my first time. So good. And this is my first time watching this movie since watching oh. Barry. So um, just like recognizing him. And uh, I think that made it even funnier for me was just kind of like seeing him in in this role just like seeing William Sadler as death is funnier if you're if the only thing you know him from is like the psychotic uh you know die bad hard guy two. in die hard 2 the guy yeah. who does naked tai chi uh yeah. and then William Sadler is just so much and you can tell he's having fun and I'm like I love that like when you see you know serious actors just, they get to have fun yeah and Anthony Carrigan <laughs> you know we've seen him doing uh, comedy 
in one particular way on Barry and then seeing him do this character, which is also very funny, but in a very different way is really a treat. And uh, it's it's a fun character. I will say, though, my my one gripe with Bill and Ted Face the Music is that the vision of the future feels way too different from the way that it's portrayed in Excellent Adventure and in Bogus Journey, where in Excellent Adventure, it is kind of dark and there are a lot of more a lot more like geometric shapes, whereas this it's all very white and bright with a lot of like smooth lines. Yeah, well, it's it's like here they're on like one of like this this the nicer Star Wars planets from the prequels. Well, even in uh, even in Bogus Journey, when we see you know Rufus the mm. college that he's teaching at, it it reminded me a lot of like Star Trek when they're at like the you know Starfleet Academy. Academy or whatever, and uh, it it all just looks like Earth, but just you know futuristic and everything. But there's still a lot more geometric shapes, and uh, it seems like. If they would have added in some of those elements, I feel like it would have seemed like kind of the same future. But instead, it's like there's, you know, the the time travel device is just like a big egg orb kind of a thing. Yeah. But that's like, if that's my gripe, then boohoo. Um, but Dan, do you want to hear what our ideas were for a Bill and Ted movie? Yes. Huh. Do you want to do you first or me first? Uh... I, I don't know. I'll, I'll hear. I'll, I don't care. Hear me first. I well, I was trying to think about like how would you remake Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. I was like, you could certainly take the concept and you could certainly adapt that and take put that in a contemporary context. I would not suggest calling it Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure or having a char- the character of of Rufus. <laughs> well, yeah, you can't do I feel like you can't do anything with Rufus anymore. I think the concept of two st- students who have really high stakes on a project and they travel through time to either learn about history or actually bring back people from history. There, there are so many other periods you could do. It wouldn't have to be repetitive. And I'm not saying they should do this, but I think the concept is one that you could, that you could use again. It could be a Bill and Ted present like a fast and furious presents. <laughs> well, maybe, it, maybe uh, we follow back up with Missy See who Missy's oh, with these days. I don't know. I just, in my I all of a sudden went to, I was like, Keenan and Kel's Excellent Adventure. Keenan and Kel, oh my God. I mean, <laughs> I don't. Well, see, the thing is like, if George Carlin was still with us, then I could see Rufus, or maybe maybe it's even like one of Rufus's like old students or like somebody from that world. You know, maybe there's some other problem going on and... They say, well, you know, this worked that one time with Bill and Ted. Like, maybe it'll work again. So lots of interesting stuff that you brought up in in that one. We, we've caught back up with Missy. We see who, she, who she's with now. Yeah. It's Deacon. Yeah. Which, I mean, <laughs> I don't think that topic came up at, at the time. 
Um, but I, I don't know if I, if you had asked me then, like, who is Missy going to be with? I don't know that I would have made that really logical conclusion. Yeah. Played by Beck Bennett. <laughs> yeah. Uh, who's so funny. And uh, I, he's a perfect deacon. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No problems there. And then, you know, not too far off with, uh, you know, one of Rufus is, you know, we, well, I said, one of well, his students, this is his daughter. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm sure his daughter learned from him. Yeah. No, no, no. That's that. Yeah. And I was talking really more about a, a like, yeah. I guess a loose remake than a, than a sequel. Um, yeah. So, I mean. I'm, but it is interesting to see, you know, the things that we talked about in 2019, uh, that you know elements that did kind of sneak their way into what ended up just becoming the third in the trilogy. Yeah, I mean, you do have a new pair that's going through time because you have Thea and Billy. Billy, yeah, yeah Thea and Billy. Um, yeah, who I thought were great. Also, uh, funny that they named their daughters after each other. Well, I mean, at the end of Bogus Journey, it's like like to introduce you to little Bill and little Ted, and it's you know. Thea and Billy. Right. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, just kind of want to uh, call out a few people who were, were in the film. Well, Samara Weaving. Yeah. Who play, plays Thea. And Samara Weaving, I mean, she's in the latest Scream movies. The latest Scream movie or uh, just one of the latest. I feel like they've been kind of pumping those out they lately. They really have been. But uh, she was in The Babysitter Mayhem, Three Billboards, uh, Ready or Not. Guns Akimbo was also uh, was in 2019, so that was before then. Uh, yeah, and, and she's fantastic and and a great uh, Thea, you know, Bill's daughter. And then we have uh, Bridget Lundy Payne who plays Billy. And I haven't seen any anything else that they've been in, but I was reading up on them, and it seems like they have a, you know just a really interesting career. Uh, they were on the Netflix show Atypical. They were in Downsizing, okay. Bombshell. They're active. Yeah. Yeah. But, and the, like the other thing that I appreciated about Face the Music here, I, I, I feel like it brought any loose ends together. The resolution with Ted's father about, yeah. you know, like, oh, you, like you, you were, you were serious the whole time. Like, well, I feel like, come on, you were possessed by your son's ghost. Like, don't you think that maybe all of these weird things that have happened in your life maybe are true? Like, you were there for your son's presentation, and you saw him disappear in a phone booth, (laughs) and you didn't bother to think, like, maybe there's something weird going on? I guess that's what makes it funny, that (laughs) it takes them all being in hell. Yeah. No, absolutely, yeah. But also just uh, other cast members I want to shout out. Jillian Bell, who plays the couples counselor, Mm -hmm. which I appreciate that they acknowledge the the strain that things have, uh, you know, the strain that's been put on the princesses and their their marriages. Uh, It makes sense that they're also kind of going through their own journey of identity and and kind of where they are in time and in the universe. Mm. I mean, they were plucked from the the Middle Ages. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, honestly, something that could have easily been like overlooked or, or glazed over, but yeah. um yeah, maybe the most like tethered to reality aspect of of the film. Yeah. Uh, you know, of course there's the actors who play the different historical figures, but also Kid Cuddy, who uh, uh I recently watched in the film X. I hadn't seen the movie X, uh, the Ty West 
horror film. I was like, oh, Kid Cudi's in that. Ah. And so I, I accidentally did a Kid Cudi double feature when I watched uh, X and Bill and Ted face the music back to back. Oh, okay. He yells out a nice little station at the end, yeah. which is fun. It's kind of like, oh, okay. So he maybe knows about the things that happened in Bogus Journey when Station was there for that. Like, well, because then there's Kid like, Cudi like just kind of beams up. So there's maybe there's a connection between Kid Cudi and Station. Maybe that's another avenue to explore oh, in the Bill and Ted well, universe. <laughs> we're already 40 minutes into this. Why don't we listen to what I had to say yes. about a potential third Bill and Ted movie? I had an idea for a third Bill and Ted movie because the way I see it, their idea doesn't work based on the end of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey and the year 2691. Because if you are placing them in 2019, you are erasing the fact that they existed in 2691 and are making all of these headlines on magazines that don't exist anymore, but maybe they do in... Uh, in print. <laughs> Yeah, right. Premier Magazine is back in the uh, 26, yeah. By the way, 90s. I, I, one thing I enjoyed from, from Excellent Adventure was at the end when he gives them uh, their their futuristic, amazing album on CD, where right. apparently holographic cover art has come a long way, but the actual music format as CD ha- ha- has, has stayed. Totally. Or it's back, it's retro. Well, another thing to consider is that on the albums that they are known for, they are their young selves. So if they're 50 and still haven't done it yet, then like it doesn't really line up with the worlds they've created before. So what I'm saying is, don't set a movie, a third movie in 2019, set it in 2691. They are playing their big show on the moon or, or on Mars. And that's when like some sort of intergalactic craziness is going down. And like they're the only one. Like there's another galaxy. Are they called on to defend peril. the frontier? Yeah, right. Ooh. Oh, man. We're going to talk about that one pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe they get called on by like creatures from another galaxy to help them solve their crisis. And they have to travel through space and uh, solve a whole bunch of problems there. Maybe using some of their knowledge of Earth history, Mm -hmm. things they've learned along the way. I don't know. Okay, so I think I was just working at some of my gripes with how how they were going to pull it off because of how bogus journey ended. But I think that with the, you know, Billy and Thea intro for bogus journey, it it's kind of just like, all right, yeah, fine. But that all didn't really work out. It's Bill and Ted. Just it's Bill and Ted. Yeah. Get over it. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I was a little, I guess just hung up on how, how everything just was kind of wrapped up in a little bow uh, at the end of bogus journey they had this montage of all these newspaper articles from the year 2691 that explained how everything worked out like magic. But anyway, I'm, I'm glad that things ended up, ended up happening the way that they do. 
And uh, yeah, yeah, though, I feel like as I was listening to to that idea, I just I thought to myself, you know, that would have been a really interesting alternate route to take um, and just completely go into the sci-fi these these dopey fellas figure out how to save uh you know how to save earth and maybe save you know the solar system but could they save another planet and what would they you know are they the passengers (laughs) well and at the end of face the music you know the planets align yeah and uh, it is and you know an inter maybe not intergalactic but uh it does you know impact the universe which man and 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 your your suggestion of like you know something bigger something greater something you know i mean it is like they are facing the end of reality in this yes so right so what we didn't talk about is there's kind of ripples in space time and different uh historical figures are kind of disappearing and ending up in different places you know there's just been a a rift kind of caused by all of the shenanigans that have been going down through because of of time travel and i think that that kind of leads us into talking about indiana jones and the dial of it sure does (laughs) (laughs) little did we know that it really would perfectly do wow yeah talk about a convenient overlap (laughs) and it's also proof that maybe going into uh, the extraterrestrial is a step in the wrong direction. Uh, well, yes. So, uh, yeah, we recorded our episode on the Indiana Jones franchise in February of 2020. And uh, it's so fat. Dan, should we just listen to what we were finding out about the oh, new Indiana Jones at that time? Absolutely. Well, and I guess it, we should note that uh, that the fifth Indiana Jones movie is scheduled for release in July right. of two, 2021 with Shia LaBeouf not not coming mm-hmm. back and but Harrison Fjord returning to the role. And it is I can only imagine but yep. Yeah, and it is not a reboot. Right. No, it is that was actually clarified. I think today yeah. I saw this news. It is a continuation. This is a sequel. So mm-hmm. yeah, we Kathleen are Kennedy be... confirms not a reboot. Oh, I think that's all we had. <laughs> well, I can I, I can confirm now it was not a re. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, I would say it was not a reboot. Yeah. Anyway. Not a reboot. No, not. So that's all that we knew at the time. Yeah. we All that we knew is that there'd be no Shia LaBeouf, which is like, okay, good. Nobody wanted that in the first place, right? Correct. Yeah. the uh, it, I rewatched Kingdom, uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull uh, recently, and man, when he like picks up the hat at the end and almost puts it on, it's like, no, don't do it. Yeah, and then when he does that, it, it's like, oh, thank put God. Put that hat down. Yeah. You have not earned that. Yeah, so uh, here's a little synopsis of Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. This is an area where we're definitely going to be spoiling a movie that is currently in theaters. So uh, you've been warned. Yeah. 
In Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, archaeologist Indiana Jones races against time to retrieve a legendary artifact that can change the course of history. The film is set in 1969 and follows Jones and his estranged goddaughter, Helena, as they try to locate the artifact before Jürgen Voller, a Nazi-turned-NASA scientist who plans to use it to alter the outcome of World War II. Voller, played by Mods Mikkelsen, is a mathematician for the United States government credited with helping put astronauts on the moon. He plans to use the... Oh, geez. How do you pronounce this? Antikythera? I, yeah. Yes. Antikythera? To travel back to World War II and alter history so that Germany comes out on top. And what he's planning to do is kill Hitler and do it right. It's not like killing Hitler to end the war. It's killing Hitler to get him out of the way. Because the problem with, you know, the plan was with Hitler. It wasn't, right. you know, it was just that that guy sucked. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I I love it. And and who better to play that role than Mads Mikkelsen? Well, Mads Mikkelsen, okay. Amazing Bond villain, Casino Royale. He cries yeah. blood. Oh, oh, my God. So good. Uh, he was a Marvel villain. This mysterious, you know, time and space bending weirdo. Who I, was I he in, in Marvel? He was in the he was in Doctor Strange, the first Doctor Strange, and he uh was like essentially trained to be one of the, you know, Dr. Strange type, like, I don't know, under the tutelage of Tilda Swinton. Okay. The great one. Oh, and, right. and, and went rogue and went evil because he was power hungry and started doing all these, uh, bad incantations. Oh, it's been a long time since I've seen it. So perfect. Mods Mickelson. If you can't get him, Ben Mendelson. Ben Mendelsohn, you think? I don't know. Not, not just because their names are somewhat similar. No, not at all, D- and definitely not for this role. No, uh, Mods Mickelson is perfect for this. Yeah. Uh, he's also Hannibal Lecter, right? Yes, uh, yes. you know, a, a great Hannibal Lecter. So, uh, yeah, we have Mods Mickelson. We have Phoebe Waller Bridge as uh, his goddaughter Wombat Helena, and uh, it's Dan. Dan, what'd you think of the movie? Um, all right. So overall, I appreciated the movie. I think that's the best word that I can use. If I was going to use one word to, to encapsulate my feelings about it, I appreciated it. Now, of course, uh, as Wikipedia has it, there were plans for five Indiana Jones movies dating back to like when they were making Raiders. So, okay. but I always felt like Last Crusade really you know, tied it up nicely. I thought it worked really well as a trilogy and just the ending of last crusade. It just feels like final. And then came kingdom of the crystal skull. So I feel that this fifth film, I don't feel that a fourth or fifth film were like, you know, really necessary at at all. But I feel like the fourth film then necessitated the fifth film. Yes, and we I needed f- to correct history. Yes, uh, yes, very appropriately. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it's actually, it's really, actually, now that you mention it, um, it's it's really kind of meta that I think that's kind of, like, the purpose of this movie is, I mean, you know, I don't know if anyone has said it or would say it, but, like, part of the purpose of this movie is to not, you know, leave fans with a sour taste uh, yeah. and, and conclude. This. And I think that, uh, what it does, I think it does that very well. The opening sequence, by the way. Yeah. I thought it was so, which takes place in, uh, 
what, 39? No, for, uh, 45. Was it 45? Okay, yeah. so 45. Because it's it's like the ending, the final days of the war, like Hitler's getting desperate. Oh, it's the final. Uh, you know, I saw it when it first, I saw it like opening weekend. So my memory is a little fuzzy right now. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I saw it, man, I caught the last showing at my local theater before it, it moved out to make room for, I don't something like Sound of Freedom. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, so it was 1945. And I'm usually very skeptical of like the de-aged performances. Like the Irishman, it was just like, oh, uh, uh, you could have just cast another actor. Yeah, But I thought that, first of all, the sequence was just long enough where for me, at least, there was the excitement of like, that's Indiana Jones. It worked. It worked. And it, it worked really well. I thought it was so smart to tell your audience, like, we got you. you we know what you want. We want to see a, I don't know, 40-something-year-old Indiana Jones punch a Nazi. Right. Yes. Um, and it, But it also, it sets you up because it has all, like, that opening sequence has all of the, you know, hallmarks of the the best of the Indiana Jones movies. So it, it was kind of like, I and not in a bad way, but I felt like as I was watching it, I was checking it off. I, I was like, oh boy, a narrow, you know, narrow escape, uh, you know, uh, vehicle trying to get, you know, through yeah. a tight space, all that stuff. Um, These th- movies are all just a series of chase sequences. With some dialogue to connect them. Yes, though I thought that this one had much more about uh, character in this one. And the idea of uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's character is the daughter of a friend and and uh, you know, fellow archaeologist, uh, played by Toby Jones. Always nice to see yeah. Toby Jones. Love um, Toby Jones. He fits in perfectly into oh, an Indiana Jones movie. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And his kind of obsession over recovering is it the other half of the right. So the Antikyth- Antikythera, Antikythera. It's two pieces of a device called you know, and it's referred to as the dial. Right. Yes. Of of destiny. Do they say of destiny in it or is that just no, I don't the title so. of the movie? Yeah, but they call it The Dial. Okay, well, first of all, Dan, I I loved the movie. I thought that it was really fun. It's not going to be Raiders. We know that nothing is going to be Raiders. Even Last Crusade isn't Raiders. Last Crusade is great. It's not Raiders. And leaving the theater after seeing Kingdom of the Crystal Skull at a midnight showing on opening night... Man, I felt so disappointed. Mm. And leaving the theater this time, I was just like, wow, it was really fun to be back with Indy again. Yeah. And yeah. I, 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 you know, like I said, I rewatched Kingdom of the Crystal Skull recently. And watching it, I was just like, there's a lot here to like. There's a lot of sequences that I really appreciate. Even the whole extraterrestrial aspect of it in hindsight, it's like, okay, well, we live in a in an Indiana Jones world where we've seen the Ark of the Covenant opened and, uh, you know, a killer of army, you know, destroys an army, essentially, uh, right, right in front of us. In Temple of Doom, we have these uh, mystical stones and we have somebody, you know, pulling out somebody's heart. And seeing it catch on fire, you know, it's like there are there are things that have happened. We see a gunshot wound get healed 
by pouring water onto it from a particular cup. Like we've seen things happen that we can't quite explain. Right. And so extraterrestrials, okay, that's that's fine. And I feel like without that happening in Crystal Skull, to see him travel through time in Dial of Destiny is more acceptable than if it had happened without Crystal Skull. You phrased that very well. Uh, Thank you. That's the really the part of the movie where I kind of rolled my eyes. But I had that same thought where I'm like, would I rather it was aliens? I'm like, at least because my problem with aliens was something like the Indiana Jones series is about the mysticism and magic of this planet and of its, you know, history or supposed supposed history. Like, you know, yeah. they, you know, Indiana Jones uh, does kind of, you know, put take some, you know, supernatural. It puts the supernatural into the real world. Um, yeah. So the involvement of aliens, to me, that kind of, it broke a rule of Indiana Jones. <laughs> right. For me, well, just I, for me. Well, and also rewatching it, because they put it into the perspective of, you know, these, these were they in Peru? I can't remember exactly yeah. where they were. But, uh, you know, these tribal communities and this, this city of gold that they're protecting for it to connect its, I guess, uh, unexplained phenomena to aliens is the same as us attributing uh, unexplained phenomena to religion. Logically, uh, I, I'm well. I mean, no, honestly, yeah. like lo- logically, I mean, uh, the a- aliens things more logical. <laughs> Yeah. Um, uh, honestly, yeah. So, but I just for, for him to go back yeah. in time to the you know to the time of Archimedes in Greece and at the siege of Syracuse, you know, this is an archaeologist who has been struggling in his latter years with his identity, and to go back in time and to kind of live amongst the relics in their you know in their moment seemed to be a an appropriate. And it, I mean, he does come back, but but doesn't he uh, say something like, "This is where I yeah. belong. This is where I belong." And uh, you know, it, it's kind of true. Go back I, and without I, me, wombat. And I appreciated that about it. I I thought that it was smart the way. And and I like, like we've talked about on this podcast before. You know, we're definitely in a time of Harrison Ford's career uh, where it seems like he's really loving what he's doing, and. Uh, whether it's, you know, the show Shrinking on Apple TV Plus or whatever, uh, you know, other movies that he's doing, you know, he seems to really be doing things because he loves it. Whereas maybe in the earlier 2000s, he was doing things just because it was kind of going through the motions. And yeah, I yeah, I, that's that's how I felt. Can I also I just aside a side thought and interesting because The Last Starfighter came up earlier. Yes. But uh, one, another thought that I had as I was watching Indiana Jones was, oh, he'd make a great Centauri. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so I, I saw the movie with my friend Emily and we saw it at the Baghdad Theater in Portland, which is a beautiful theater. It's, you know, when I go to see an Indiana Jones movie, I saw uh, Crystal Skull at the Vista Theater in Los Angeles. I believe it was bought by Quentin Tarantino and is still not yet reopened, I believe. But at the time, you know, it it had this like ancient Egyptian vibe to it. And 
uh, going to see an Indiana Jones movie in like an AMC or a Regal, I don't think would feel right. But uh, so, you know, I'm in this beautiful theater, the Baghdad Theater, and with my friend Emily. Uh, and there's the first scene when we see him in 1969, New York, and uh, he is just wearing boxers and no shirt. And she just turns <laughs> to me, she just goes, he's still hot. And I just go, <laughs> hell yeah, he is. Oh, and yeah. uh, it was just like... But hell yeah, Harrison Ford. And also in a series of, I think, uh, what this movie does nicely is call back to some of the earlier films is calls back to, uh, you know, Raiders and Last Crusade, where his lecture hall is full of people, you Mm -hmm. know, whether they're just legitimately fascinated archaeology students or girls who think he's hot. Hot for teacher. Who write love you on their eyelids and blink at him. Like (laughs) now, no one cares and there's but also it frames it nicely in the late 60s without necessarily making it no it all feels very appropriate yeah absolutely it's a lot of fun harrison ford does an amazing job the de-aging at least from our 2023 perspective looks and feels really great and was really satisfying because to see indiana jones in the original look, mm-hmm. punching a Nazi. That's what we came here for. And that's what we want more of. It sets the tone. <laughs> it does. I feel like also like the like the lighting in a lot of the scenes yeah. helped. Like there was a lot of shadows. Sure. So, but it really like I loved just like you're seeing the grit. And sorry, it was 1944. 44. Okay. It was a lot of fun. And another movie, like you said with Bill and Ted, it, it plays by the rules of that franchise even even with the time travel and we're still dealing with the the history of this planet and you know this one man's kind of obsession with history and his resistance to becoming history right so what did we say so what did we say say? all right this time uh, i'll do i'll do mine first I i would love to see I don't know, a series of movies about a younger Abner Ravenwood, perhaps with uh, Marion's mother. Maybe the two of them are adventuring archaeologists. I think that it'd be a good opportunity to see a completely different era that we uh-huh. don't really see a lot. Uh, you know, the turn of the 20th century. So, yeah, I think that that could be really cool. Maybe it involves... One of them could involve him finding the amulet that is featured in Raiders. Clearly, he'd be he'd be played by Oscar Isaac. I'm just saying that's what's happening. Would be Abner Ravenwood. Yeah, why not? Yeah, no, absolutely. Who would you would you have uh, Henry Jones Senior? Yeah, because the two of them were colleagues, right? I'm trying to remember exactly the two of them and and Brody and Brody, right? Yeah, I mean you'd have to have them involved i don't know who would be who would be your marcus brody your younger marcus brody well assuming that they would be around the same age i think that french fry phil said it earlier sam rockwell as brody yeah i mean i guess look sam rockwell can do anything so yeah you said sam rockwell as marion ravenwood and i'd be like yeah why not yeah totally so all right yeah uh Sam Rockwell as as a young as a young Brody Abner Abner you really I guess the only basis you have to go on is someone who could believably have fathered Karen Allen yeah and then for Henry Henry Jones like a James McAvoy 
Yeah, I don't know what uh, younger Scottish actors we have right now. Yeah, I don't. Good question. Yeah, I just don't know. But no. yeah, I, I'd like to see some of those adventures at in a completely different era. I think that it's always good when you go back to a time when, you know, technology is almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. Or, well, rather, the technology of the time is well very yeah. rudimentary. So yeah. it's like the technology of the time was the, the telephone. Right. Which I guess, oh, how times have changed. Oh, how times indeed have changed. Oh, how times have changed is how we ended that one. We talked about something with a dial. What? <laughs> also, I since then, I have done my research on the younger Scottish actors. And uh, I think Richard Madden would be a great uh, young Sean Connery. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he would be, and he would fit really well into a, an adventurer, kind of a swashbuckling uh, adventurer. Totally kind agree. Of role. Totally. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was and I, you know who I would love to see? And I don't know if he would be too old if you were to do this. Cause I'm thinking also, I'm like, it sounds like it would be a series. It sounds like one of those like, yeah. like ratchet. It would be a series like the Ravenwoods. <laughs> but when, when you talk about a younger Marcus Brody, like would Martin Freeman be too old at this point? Yeah. Martin Freeman's too old. Even James yeah. McAvoy is too old. I was thinking Ewan McGregor, but he's too but also, old. Also, yeah. Yeah. For, so yeah. that's why I was thinking Richard Madden. He's like, just young enough. I mean, not that this is actually happening, but. No, but Richard Madden, if you were, if this was going into uh, production, you know, strikes and uh, unions get, get what they want. Um, yeah. This goes into production. Yes. Richard Madden. Uh, I, I can't think of anyone better off the top of my head. Yeah. So, and, and what we didn't hear in that is that having a having something where we do talk about the previous generation of uh, archaeologist adventurers, that's you know that's something that you had actually brought up initially. So I just wanted to make sure that I'm acknowledging oh, that as well. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I guess I wasn't really thinking in terms of what the fifth indie movie would be, but just some other some other sort of indie property. Right. So, Dan, I have listened to yours, and I think you're going to enjoy listening to it, too. Oh, God. Shall we? Yes. It's entirely plausible that in all these years of occasionally teaching archaeology, he may have inspired some students. So what if a student comes to him and is like, hey, remember this thing that you always talked about? And it was like rumor, some some type of artifact or something that Indiana Jones always just was missing that one piece to the puzzle of how to get it. And this former student comes and is like, I think I got it. Now, because the, each of the Indiana Jones movies ends up taking Indy to a different continent, it usually focuses on one continent Temple of Doom being Asia, uh, Crystal Skull being South America, Raiders being Africa. Mm-hmm. So what? A, and what a great opportunity! And imagine. So you've got Indiana Jones. He he's old. He's seeing America as it is in the late sixties, early seventies. And why not have him go to Australia? Okay. Why not have Indiana? Why not? Why Aboriginal lore and 
you know, myth and artifacts. There's we don't really have adventure movies that explore that. They're they're always going whether it's to you know to the the Amazon. And I don't know, maybe it's, you know, this this student is of Aboriginal ancestry. So you could take Indiana Jones not only to Australia, but you could have him have to go, go you know, Tas- Tasmania, you know, the, the islands, but have Indiana Jones with this student. And, you know, maybe this student kind of you know picks up the uh the hat you know pick picks up the hat picks up the you know metaphorically i don't i i really don't don't think that but you could almost build a new franchise and especially look disney owns lucasfilm so disney is going to be making this and disney is all about promoting i i feel like disney has been a lot more focused on diversity in casting promoting strong female protagonists so how about a strong female protagonist of um you know aboriginal descent Mm -hmm. you know who says like hey i was i was back home and i you know was doing this and found this and i think this could be the missing piece to whatever it is you're looking for do the research fill in the blanks yeah and then it's set in australia you get yourself a Hemsworth, you got it made. Okay, all right. So you're going with the the protege, not blood related. No, because it's it's the opportunity. Not to mention that you're you're moving forward in time, so it's more plausible. You're going to have more uh, women in the field of archaeology. Mm-hmm. Uh, not to mention it's this era of civil rights, equal rights. So it's a great opportunity to kind of transfer this this role this type of role to a a, a young woman of color. So not a former student, not a young woman of color, not in Australia, but a protege, a female protege. And who says, "Hey, I've got this thing." <laughs> Looking for the missing piece of a the missing puzzle. Piece. I know. I listened to that and I was just like, well, it didn't not a hundred percent, but there are some things that Dan got. I okay. All right. I'll pat <laughs> myself on the back for that. Also, I mean so first of all, when we were when I was saying like, you know, or when we were talking about whether it's a reboot before, I was like, you could easily transition this franchise in a in a creed fashion almost to um Wombat. <laughs> Yeah, I don't necessarily advocate for that, but it would be interesting. I got to say, though, I feel like they should have maybe listened to my idea. (laughs) Like, look, they did fine with it, but I'm listening to it and I'm like, no, damn it. I want to see that. You probably won't, but okay. You know, not to blow smoke up my own ass here, but yeah, like, yeah. So also I wombat or helena it's toby jones's character's daughter yes so it's a a, you know a colleague's daughter who you know was obviously very close with him as his goddaughter right so it's not just a random person um yeah it does feel a little weird that we never heard of her unless 
Yeah, no. You know, I thought about that, and then I was like, uh, it's an Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. yeah. He's got a whole life, aside from the stuff that we've seen. I mean, I, yeah. I, yeah, when you think about it, it's like, yeah, we really just see the people. I mean, like, is there? Ne- there's never any mention of Willie Scott or Short Round <laughs> after Temple of Doom? Like, well... I, you know, Dial of Destiny was made before uh, Ki Hui Kwan is back in the picture. Well, yeah. So, no, but I, I mean, like, they, there's not they, even like, because, like, you see that he's got the pictures in, of, of right. like, his son and uh, his father. So, where's a snapshot of uh, of him and Shorty? Yeah, they were, they were homies. You know, we don't even know how, I, I mean, he couldn't have been too, too much younger. You know, short round couldn't have been too much younger when he met Indy because he was just a little kid at the time. But right. um, who knows how that relationship lived on. And we just have to imagine that the thing with Willie fizzled out shortly after. Yeah, I think though some acknowledgement, especially because they acknowledge the like other aspects of the series, I feel like I guess I feel like sometimes the Indiana Jones There's a franchise- mention of Kali. In, in uh, Dial of Destiny. Oh right, yes, yeah. yes. Which oh. I was like, all right, shouting out Temple of Doom a little bit, like to just mention the fact that it existed is yeah. kind of fun. You know what'd be really interesting is if you had an author to write a memoir of Indiana Jones. Oh yeah, because like you said, there's this whole life at like we just see you know Raiders right. of the Lost Ark. We just see like you know what a week. <laughs> Well, you know, there was the young Indiana Jones series. Yeah. I, I I don't know how much of that they say is canon, but I don't know. I, and certainly there's plenty of other filler. I'm sure also, aren't there like in- adventures of Indiana Jones books and there, things like that? There are. In fact, yeah. there are some on the bookshelf in our brother Scott's bedroom. Uh, oh, not surprising at all. I, I, almost, I almost grabbed them last time we were there. I didn't you should room. have. I didn't have room. Didn't have room. Yeah. So I, I think that it's what they did felt good to me and I wouldn't have changed too much about it. The, I know that it has plenty of, you know, critics who didn't love it so much, but to hell with them. Like I said, I appreciated it. It as a fan of the movies, as a fan of the trilogy of the character, it made up for that disappointment that you described walking out of the theater. The one that ruined childhoods. <laughs> yes, yeah, seriously. I, that was one of those movies where I think everybody took a step back and was just like, why did we let this happen? <laughs> I feel like everybody involved with that, Steven Spielberg included, was kind of like going with the motions, except for Kate Blanchett, who just always goes all out. She was great. Some of the things that I did like about Crystal Skull... Kate Blanchett was really good. I did like, I had no problems with the opening sequence with the, you know, the the nuclear test site and any of that. Uh, we in, in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, we do get a, a solid Oppenheimer reference from Kate Blanchett's character. Uh, they have a little conversation about him and the and the in the bomb. But also I uh, I kind of liked the journey through 
Area 51 and all of the crates where we do get a glimpse of the Ark of the Covenant. Right, yes. And it's crate. Uh, I thought that that was fun. I had no problems with that at all. I liked the idea of finding the crate that they're looking for because he knows that it's, you know, magnetized and using all of the like shotgun shells and gunpowder, throwing it in the air to like help them find it. And uh, I, I appreciated that about it. I didn't love the like, CGI ants. I didn't think that that was a a good look, especially since we had a really great bug sequence in Temple of Doom right. with real bugs. Uh, it doesn't feel good when it's like a very clearly CGI'd. Well, and the uh, CGI in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was not great. In no, general, no. I think that a lot of the other stuff that worked for me, you know, even when they were in peru and they're having to uh, there's there's all these booby traps and stuff like that that they're trying to get around I, you know that stuff it's good it's indiana jones it's it feels authentic to it right yeah no but the, yeah no it started off with promise but then there was enough that there was enough that made you go oh shia labeouf you know, swinging from the vines is another one, which yes. is completely ridiculous. Oh, the whole uh, freaking like Tarzan sequence. I just wanted to start playing Phil Collins music. Also, just Shia LaBeouf. Like like we were saying, no one asked for that. No. If um, it was somebody else, it might have been more palatable. Though, speaking of casting and bringing it back to Dial of Destiny, mm-hmm. not we have yet to mention how I, I found it so pleasant when Antonio Banderas pops up. Oh, yeah. A little sea captain, Antonio Banderas. That's I great. love this phase of his career. <laughs> yeah, he's just kind of doing whatever. Yeah, Good for him. But he's like, he's again, he's like one of those actors like Toby Jones who just like fits yeah. in perfectly. And you're like, yes, I'm glad you're in an Indiana Jones movie. We also get the return of John Reese Davies. Yes. Which is always satisfying. You know, we get to see Karen Allen again. She comes in at the end. It's a good cast. Boyd Holbrook. It does it right. It wraps things up nicely. It leaves you with a good feeling and it leave, you're like, okay, I feel good about the character of Indiana Jones. I feel good about, you know, closing that chapter of my life. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of closing that chapter of our lives, it's time to close the chapter of this episode. Oh, indeed. Episode 200. So Dan, for episode 201, do you want to tell everyone what we're going to be touching on? Ah, well, we could not revisit our, our old episodes without talking about the Adams Family and uh, most notably, Wednesday hit Netflix series. Hit Netflix series Wednesday plus the two animated films yes. that have come out since we did since we did that episode. And we will also be checking out the recut Rocky Four Drago versus Balboa versus Drago. Rock, Rocky versus Drago. Rocky versus. See, it confuses yeah, me. Yeah, Sylvester first Stallone's name, but. recut of. Rocky Four. Yes. So, uh, though, and those episodes both came out in March of 2019. Okay. All right. So it's it's quite quite some time has passed since we've talked about Rocky Four and the Adam's Family. Our Rocky Four episode. That's when we were doing just the fourth installations of. of yes. And so it's great that Rocky Four happens to have a new thing. It's it's truly it's bizarre. So random and fun. I love it. But yeah. yeah, so I'm excited. Uh, I haven't seen uh, Stallone's recut of it yet. No, neither have I. I'm excited to. Looking forward to checking that out yeah. and uh, also chatting about Adam's family. Might see if I can get that get the family in to watch Adam's family. Oh, do 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 do. 
So, Dan, as you are traveling through time, whether it be by phone booth or dial of destiny, I wish you a good or I could, journey. I could dial in the phone booth of, never mind, good journey. <laughs> <laughs>